Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. And now on St. Valentine's Night, Drama on One presents a love story with a twist. Peter Sheridan's 47 Roses is a romance of lives lived and loves lost, where mystery letters embrace secrets still concealed and bruised hearts with flesh wounds not quite congealed. A son gently probes the present for answers to the past. Can he ever solve the riddle of 47 roses? I'm sitting on a bus, travelling to Derry. It's a Friday. A bitterly cold Friday in January. Friday, January the 14th, 1994. As the bus pulled into the depot, it slowed down and a man jumped on. Ladies and gentlemen. I could tell immediately by the cap that he was a ticket checker or an inspector. Ladies and gentlemen, can I have your attention, please? Ladies and gentlemen, can I have your attention? If there's a passenger Sheridan on board, would he please make himself known to me? Thank you. I was intrigued. Somebody sharing my name was travelling on the bus. I looked around and I tried to pick him out, this other Sheridan. I stayed in my seat waiting for him to make himself known. One by one the bus emptied and I was left sitting in my seat. I got my bag down from the overhead and I made my way forward. My name is Sheridan, but I don't think it's me you're looking for. Are you Peter Sheridan? Sheridan? Yeah. From Celtic Park from Avenue, Celtic in, Park Dublin. Avenue in Dublin. Yeah. You've to ring home for an urgent message. To ring home for an urgent message. It was me. Oh, my first thought was that something had happened to one of my children. Oh, I prayed it was just a sprained ankle or a broken arm. I put my hand in my pockets, looking for some change to use the phone, and I realised I only had sterling notes. They had a deli counter in the station. I made my way across, but I couldn't change it unless I bought something. Give me a chocolate donut, please. I don't even like chocolate donuts. I left it on the counter. I got my change and went in search of a telephone. And then I realised I didn't know how to ring Dublin from a Northern Ireland telephone. I mean, there are times you hate partition. This was one of them. I found a phone, I loaded the coins in, and I took a chance on country code 353 and city code 1. I dialed the number and it rang. My daughter, Diren answered the phone. As soon as she heard my voice, she burst into tears. Her grandfather was dead, my father. Peter. I'd been named for him. There were two Peters in our house, and I was sometimes referred to in the family as Peter Martin, to tell us apart. I got some more coins and I called my mother. She was beside herself. She could not stop going over the details of how she'd gone to town that morning for a few messages and when she got back to the house she found them on the floor. Why, oh why, had she gone to town? If she'd just gone local she could have saved them. That was the tragedy. Why, oh why, had she gone to town? Look, ma... There is no point in blaming yourself. I'll be back home in a couple of hours and we can go over everything. 
So I got back on the bus, the same bus, and I sat in exactly the same seat. And I looked out the window and I thought about my father. Da was the only name he was ever known by. <laughs> it started to snow. Oh, that took me back. To New Year's Eve 1959. I was nearly eight. Well, I was seven and three quarters. Fractions matter when you're seven. Da had gone up on the roof to put up a television aerial. He'd gone up there with his two brothers, my uncles Jim and Paddy. We were all huddled around the television set in the kitchen. He'd gone up there at five o'clock and he said to Ma, Ma, I'll be finished and down for me TV seven o'clock. It was half ten and there was no sign of him. There was no sign of a television picture either. Eventually he did come down. He threw a pair of gloves and a hat at me and he told me to get them on. Son, you're going up the aerial. Oh, me ma protested. She had Frankie, the baby, on her knee. He was three and a half and he should have been in bed, but it was a special night, the coming of television. Only it hadn't come. They went out to the scullery. There were raised voices. I could hear them arguing. I was sort of hoping that me ma would win the argument with me da. Because that would mean I wouldn't have to go up that ladder onto the roof. It was very high up there. Three stories, And if you look down, it made you dizzy. Da won the argument. I got me coat on and me hat and me scarf and me gloves. And I scuttled up the ladder onto the roof. I decided not to look down. Only up. Da lifted me onto the silver pole. And I felt a hand each from Jim and Paddy. They pushed me skywards. It started to move. Very gently. Like the branches of a tree in the wind. One more push and I felt my head touch off the aerial. Da told me to grab it with both hands. I did. Now, son. Now, son. Turn that aerial towards turn England. England. Where was England? I had no idea where it was. Where's England, Da? Where's England, da? It's towards the River Liffey. Torn the aerial towards the River Liffey. I knew where the River Liffey was. If you went down several places past our house, number 44, past St. Lawrence O'Toole's church with the big steeple, and if you turned right at Gilstree and went straight down along the cobblestones until you got to the steps where the water was that was the River Liffey and country people said it was dirty but we loved it even if it was smelly my dad said it was the Liffey water that made Guinnesses so special and country people could say all they liked jealousy would get them nowhere I turned the aerial in the direction of the beautiful River Liffey Hold it there, son. Hold it it right there. there. The word went down our line of communication. My uncle Jim, he shouted at my brother John, who was standing at the top of the ladder. Johnny shouted down to Ita, who was standing at the bottom, and she shouted in through the window at Shay, my eldest brother, who was sitting in an armchair parked in front of the television. Have we a picture? 
Have we a picture? Have we a picture? The word came back up. Snow! 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 And then I heard the laugh. <laughs> My Uncle Paddy laughed when he was happy and he laughed when he was sad. He laughed when you asked him a question and he laughed when he gave you the answer. He was a laugher. What is it, me da said? <laughs> it's the church. What about the church? Uncle Jim said. <laughs> the church is blocking the signal. The church stands directly between you and a television picture. I didn't get the joke. I was only seven and three quarters after all. What happens to it after it hits the church, me dad said? It disappears up its own backside. No, it doesn't disappear up its own backside, Uncle Jim said. It bounces off the church and goes in the direction of Amiens Street Station. It collides with the station and then it heads for Crow Park in the Cusick Stand. It reforms up there and then twirls around and comes back down the North Circular Road, just like it's going for an afternoon stroll. And with that, they got me to turn the aerial 180 degrees in the opposite direction. The word went down the line of communication and came back up. Only this time there was excitement in the air. There's a picture! There's a picture! There's a picture! In their excitement... They forgot about me. Da! Can you get me down from here? He did. And in our kitchen, we had a television picture. Well, it was a sort of a picture. It was mainly snow. We watched the last minutes of 1959 fade away on our poi 14-inch television set. Then a man appeared through the bits of snow. I could make him out. He was carrying a microphone. He was standing in Trafalgar Square. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Happy New Year, Britain. Ships' horns and fireworks and whistles. It was 1960. We all raised our glasses to welcome in the new decade. Then me dad got us all to cross our arms and link one another. And he started the same song. Should all acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? On our television... A woman on a horse appeared. God save our gracious queen. God save our noble queen. (laughs) Ma looked over at that. Is that what we got a television for? We got a television for. What are you talking about, Anna? I'm talking about that woman coming into my kitchen on our horse. It's not real. It's artificial, Anna. It's it's television. Television, for God's sake. I don't care what you call it. I'm not sharing my house with the Queen of England. Good night. She plonked Frankie in his arms. 
You take the child. And marched up the stairs in a huff. I'm off to me bed. Da looked over at me and shrugged his shoulders. Good night. It was hard to believe he was gone. It didn't seem right. I looked out the window of the bus and I wondered why there were cars on the road and people walking about. Did they not know? Had they not heard? At Bussaris, my wife Sheila collected me and she brought me straight to the family home in Marino, Carlton Road. Ma had the room preserved like it was the scene of a crime. Nothing touched. Everything as it was when she got back from town. The chair he'd been sitting on was still on its side, still on the floor. On the carpet was a blood stain, still wet, probably from his nose. On the table, the newspaper opened at the racing page. He'd marked a couple of results, first, second and third, with the starting prices, in his beautiful, decisive handwriting. The last result he'd marked was the 230 from Suddle. The winner, a horse called No Submission, at a price of 12 to 1, and I could not get the irony of that out of my head. No submission followed by a collapse. What was he thinking when he looked at those words? Had he felt something? A premonition, maybe? What time did you get home from town, Ma? Oh, Pete, it was it just was gone just four o'clock. Well, he collapsed at 2.30. I showed her the newspaper... There was a 2.40 race from Leicester. He wasn't alive to market. There was nothing you could have done, Ma. It must have been a massive heart attack. I'd say he was dead when he hit the floor. We didn't want to wake him at home. Ma didn't, anyway. Not after finding him like that on the floor. So we waked him in the funeral home. Stafford's on the Malahide Road. We all gathered around his coffin in a big circle. Children and grandchildren. And we told stories about him and we laughed till we cried till we laughed again. In the end, at Ma's insistence, we read him out that day's racing results. And I'd swear I heard him in the coffin. That bastard. I backed that fella the last day he wasn't trying a yard. We had the funeral mass in Griffith Avenue Church. And after the mass, we loaded Dad's coffin into the hearse and we headed down to Seville Place, the old homestead. We came to a stop outside of number 44 and we all got out of the cars and all the neighbours came out. It was lovely, the Wigglesworths, the Fardellies, Mrs Hogan. And we held a three-minute vigil for him. Then we got back in the cars, did a U-turn and headed up the North Circular Road. In Glasnevin Cemetery... As Dad's coffin was being lowered into the ground. My brother John, he's a jazz musician. He raised a trombone to his lips and he blew. The first notes of Frankie and Johnny, which was Dad's party piece, that was his favourite song. In fact, he'd sung it on Christmas night, exactly three weeks before. The notes of it just wafted across the headstones down towards Fingless. Frankie and Johnny were lovers. Oh, Lordy, how they did love. Swore to be true to each other, just as true as the stars above. 
he was her man. He wouldn't do her no wrong. Ma decided it was time to inform Doris of Da's passing. Doris had been a friend of the family for many years. She stayed with us most summers, especially when her daughter Christine was small. The day after the month's mind, Ma called me on the telephone. Pete, Pete. what number does Doris live in on Victoria Street in Blackburn? I think it's number three, Ma, but why don't you just check one of her letters? I look for her letters everywhere, son. I can't find them. Did you check the press and the china cabinet? Everywhere, everywhere, not a sign. Nothing. Oh, she had to be wrong, I mean. They wrote hundreds of letters to each other. Doris to Da, Da to Doris. They've been writing since I was a nipper. I mean, I was over 40. Even at an average of four letters a year, that was 160 letters. They can't have just disappeared. Hey, Ma, did you check the attic? No, I didn't check the attic. Son, I never checked the attic. Well, you may be sure that's where they are. The following day, I found myself in Da's attic. It was an Aladdin's cave of his life. Everything in boxes, every box neatly marked with his beautiful handwriting. Now, I figured I was looking for correspondence, Doris, or Doris's correspondence. There was a box marked insurance, and underneath her in brackets, house, and another box insurance, and underneath that one, car. There was one for all his old wages, Stubbs. And another one marked old toys. On the other side of the attic, there was a box marked hospital account. And underneath it in brackets, Francis, R.I.P. It was strange to see his name written as Francis. When he was only ever Frankie. Frankie, first and last. He died of a brain tumour in 1967. He was ten years old at the time. I was 15. I couldn't resist. I had to open the box. There on the top was the in-memoriam notice which Da had composed and placed in the evening press newspaper. The parents, brothers and sister of the late Francis Sheridan, 44 several place, wish to thank most sincerely all those who sympathised with them in their recent sad bereavement and the thank yous, they just went on and on and on, Da losing the run of himself and thanking everybody in Dublin for their part in helping us come to terms with our loss. A loss we never came to terms with. You know, Frankie's death, it was, it was the wound that never healed. I mean, we all tried, each of us in our own way, to come to terms with it, but without success. Even now, all these years later, standing in Da's attic, it still hurt. Da took to the bed after Frankie died. Yeah, he believed that he had a tumour growing inside his head, the same one that he had passed on to his son. He went from being a man who never missed work to a man who never went to work. I remember at the time the house was always in shadow with the curtains pulled and we all walked around on tiptoe. 
Ma used to bring wet face cloths up and put them on his forehead. Ma was remarkable, you know. You know, she didn't have the luxury of taking time off. She couldn't do that with six children to look after. And then one day, out of the blue, Dad got out of the bed and came down to the kitchen. Ma, the migraine's gone. That's great, Dad. That's great, Dad. You'll be going back to work. You'll be going back to work, so. No, I'm not going back to work. I'm going to start a drama group. I've always wanted to get up onto a stage and act. Do you mean act like... Like Gary Cooper, like Cooper and High Noon, Dad. I mean just like Gary Cooper and High Noon. That was their favourite film. Dad had taken Matt to see it for one of their wedding anniversaries. And when they came back, Dad put us kids sitting on the floor in a little semicircle. And he went through the entire picture from the first scene to the last. It took two hours. At one stage, he ran out into the backyard and stared in at us through the window, frightening the life out of us. You see, we thought he was the bandits. The best part was when me da became Gary Cooper. When da played Gary Cooper, you could hear the clock ticking in our kitchen. You know, I never heard me da tell me ma that he loved her, except... When he played Gary Cooper. Do not forsake me, oh my darling. And he winked at her, I was watching him. And she winked back. And that was the nearest they ever came. Dad became an actor. He never would have done it had Frankie lived. That's the sad part. It took Frankie's death to propel him onto the stage. He founded the St. Lawrence O'Toole's musical and dramatic society. Very posh. He did it because he wanted to unite the parish of St. Lawrence O'Toole's. See, the parish was very divided between the people who lived in the corporation flats in Sheriff Street and those who lived in the houses in Seville Place. And da, he wanted to bring everybody together. I remember Tina Malai from Bridges Gardens played Minnie Powell in our first proper production, The Shadow of a Gunman, by Sean O'Casey. Da, of course, played the lead, Seamus Shields. And I played Tommy Owens from the two pair back. My brother Jim directed. And Teresa Coffey, Mrs Coffey, she ran a bed and breakfast at Seville Place, number 77. She played Mrs Grigson. And I remember on the opening night in the Oriel Hall, because Mrs. Grigson doesn't have a scene in the first act, Mrs. Coffey decided to watch the play from the front row of the audience. She got so carried away that she forgot she was in it. Oh, she had a bottle of sherry in her bag. She was swigging it. Then she passed it around and made sure that everybody in the audience got a swig. It came to the second act, she realised it was her entrance. Oh, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, Mr. Sheridan, that's me. And she ran up onto the stage to the biggest round of applause of the night and took a bell before she spoke. Any sign of the letters, peace? Letter I'm not yet, ma'am. I'm still looking. I have a torch here. Do you need a torch up there, son? Ah, no, ma. There's plenty of light up here from the bulb. 
Well, don't forget soon now to check on the far side of the boat. Oh, I will, ma, don't worry. There was a boat in our attic. Well, it was a canoe, actually. It belonged to my younger brother, Paul. And it stretched from one side of the attic right across to the far side. Now, I have no idea how he managed to get that canoe up that little square hole and into the attic. But that was his genius, you see. Taking large objects and making them fit into small little spaces. See, the truth is, he was a hoarder. He couldn't throw it out. And by the same logic I figured, the letters had to be here somewhere. I searched every nook and every cranny, nothing. I found an old wallet, and in it a photograph of Ma, Da and Doris. Da in the middle, like the cat that got the cream. I wondered, did he love her? Doris. I'd never wondered about that before. You know, Da, he always had a great grah for the English. Oh, he loved all things English. He loved our sport, cricket, horse racing, football, and especially Manchester United. But I had never associated that with Doris before. I wonder was she the reason that he loved Brighton, Blackpool and George Formby? Now I go cleaning windows to earn an honest bob. We took a chance man myself on number three, Victoria Street. Ma wrote the letter and I posted it for her in the GPO. Two days later, she had a very emotional and upsetting phone call from Doris, who was taking the first available boat to Dublin. Ma went into a complete tizzy. Spent half the day and half the night cleaning. Oh, she could not have Doris coming into a house that was anything less than 100% spick and span. She even sent me up to Woody's to get a new bedside locker and a new table lamp for the back bedroom where Doris would be sleeping. I was there the morning she arrived. Ma opened the door and Doris stood there with a bunch of red and white roses in her hand. Ma went to take them, but Doris pulled back. No, Anna. These are for the grave, Anna. These are for the grave. I promised Peter I'd do it. These are for pizza. I promised him I'd do it, so I'm, so I'm doing, doing it. it. She came in. Ma took her coat and her hat and hung it on the banister. And then the two women went into the living room and Ma went through that whole ritual of explaining what had happened on the day of his collapse and her regret at not having been there for him. I'm not surprised, Annie, you know. I'm not surprised, Annie. For he told me you know, he were going to he die. He told me he were going to die. Ma went out to wet the tay. I stayed with Doris. I offered her a lift to the cemetery. No, thank you, I'll walk. No, thank you, I'll walk. <laughs> walk, I said. It's four miles to Glasnevin from here. I don't care. I don't care. I'd like to walk. You know, your father, he walked me all all around around this city. city, He were ever so proud of Dublin. Dublin. Ma came in with the tray and the tay. Her best china was already on the table. Doris drank her milky tea and nibbled on a custard slice. Then she headed out into the streets of Dublin. And I sat with Ma... 
you know, Ma, you don't have to be available for Doris. She could stay in a bed and breakfast. I can't, I can't turf her out. Well, you could find her alternative accommodation. I mean, I could do it for you, no problem. I can't I do can't that. Do You're that. entitled to suit yourself, ma. I have, I to, have do to do what do your what father would want. want. No, you don't. Yes, I do. Yes, I you do. children don't understand. Don't I don't understand. have a choice. I, I always, always did choice. what your father wanted. I always. Did always. What your wanted. always. I put my arms around her <laughs> and I gave her a hug. I held on to her. Longer than I've ever held on to her in my life. Are you all right, Ma? Ma nodded. Are you annoyed with me, Da? She nodded again. How are you feeling about him? I'd love to... I'd love to... Dig him up out of that grave of his and punch his chest in. Punch his chest in. (laughs) That afternoon, Doris came back and I left the two women alone. Doris stayed six days. She slept in the back bedroom. Each morning she got up and had her breakfast and then she went and visited Glasnevin Cemetery. And each afternoon she came back and had her tea with Ma. On the day she was leaving, I picked her up in my car to bring her to the terminal on the north wall. I asked her about the roses, why 47? Oh, one for each year I knew your dad. And the red and white? Ooh, Manchester United, of course. course. He took you to see them play when you were a little boy. You You slept in Christine's room. Do you remember? He took me to Old Trafford to see the Busby Babes. They were playing a European Cup match against Shamrock Rovers, a, a team from Dublin. But my only memory of that occasion is being frightened. You see, in the second half, when United scored... Everybody in the stand jumped up and I thought that I'd fallen into a big black hole and I got scared and I started crying. And that's my only memory. You know, Peter took you that time to Old Trafford because Anna didn't want him coming on his own. I walked her into the waiting room and as I did, she turned around and threw her arms around me. It was lovely seeing you again. Oh, it was lovely seeing you again. And I could feel her breath on my neck. It was the nicest part of the journey for me. Oh, Oh, Peter. Peter. And the way she said it. Oh, Peter. With such longing. It was like he was back. Yeah. It felt like he was present to me again. I mean, all through the funeral and the afters, we told stories about Da, we laughed and we joked. But he was gone. Until this moment with Doris in this waiting room. And he was back. I had him back. I watched her walk through the barrier and up the gangplank. And she stopped at the top and she turned around and waved at me. I waved back. I went out to my car and I sat behind the wheel and I thought about this frail old woman who'd come all this way to pay her respects to the man she loved, my father. And I thought about Ma. And I knew that she'd been hurt by Doris. In the past, today, she'd been really, really upset by those 47 roses. 
and I wanted to protect my ma. And at the same time, I felt compelled to get to the bottom of this story. So without saying anything to ma, I wrote to Doris, and Doris replied. And it was very strange to see her letters coming into my hallway, the same as when I was a kid. The small white envelopes with my name across them, in block capitals, Peter Sheridan, same as my father. I'd asked her about the correspondence with Da, and she told me they'd made a pact to destroy the letters. I always I followed always his, instructions his instructions in such matters. In such matters. Four months before he died, in October of 1993, Peter burned her letters in Dublin and she did the same in Blackburn, Lancashire. He did it because he knew he was going to die and he didn't want anyone reading them after he was gone. And I found that very upsetting, to think of him making secret plans like that, when I thought, when we all thought the family all thought that he was in the fullness of his health. Two weeks later, I went to Manchester. I took a train to Blackburn. When I arrived in the station, I opened the carriage door. Doris was standing about 30 yards further down the platform. She sprinted up to me like a young girl. And she grabbed me with both hands, as strong as you like. And she marched me through the streets of her town. We went up to Victoria Street, number three. She showed me Christine's old room where I had slept as a boy. I had no memory of it. I noticed that she had two radios, side by side, on the sideboard. Why do you need two radios? Why do you think, you silly moo? Why do you think, you silly moo? <laughs> I have no idea. Well, this one here on the left, that's my Dublin radio tuned to RTE, and the one on the right is my BBC radio, but I prefer RTE. I like the accent on it, you know. I've heard you interviewed on it once or twice. You sound very musical, just like your dad. Peter had tuned in this radio for her in the 1950s, and she hadn't touched the dial since, in case she lost her precious link to Dublin. Did Dad love you? And the words were out before I even realised I'd said it. What do you mean? Oh, I mean, did he love you? Direct question. Yes, he did. He loved me very much and I loved oh, him. Oh, yes, he did. He loved me very much. And when did you meet him? I met Peter, I met Peter in, in 1946. 1946? That was before he met my ma. Oh, yes. Oh, I yes, I was his girlfriend first. first. Doris came to Ireland in 1946, the year after the war ended. She had wanted to come earlier, but her parents said no because of the world war and the threat from the IRA and all that stuff. She wanted to come to Ireland because of Count John McCormack. She'd heard him singing on the radio and she was so enchanted by his voice that she had to come to the place where he was from. So in 1946, her parents relented on condition that she stayed at Red Island Holiday Camp in Skerries outside Dublin. They didn't want their daughter wandering around the streets of Dublin on her own. So she took the overnight boat from Liverpool, caught a coach to Amiens Street, and she stood in line to buy her ticket for the Skerries train. In the booth was a young trainee, fresh-faced and enthusiastic. She thought he were handsome. 
She liked a cut of him, you know. The way he had his hair parted at the side over in a lovely quiff. She thought he looked a little bit like John McCormack. Scary's return, please. You look a little bit like John McCormack. Has anybody ever said that to you? Well, do you know something? You are not the first person to say that to me. Makushla, Makushla, your sweet voice is calling, calling me softly again and again. From that moment, she was in love with Peter, my father. He came out from behind his position, picked up her suitcase and he walked her to the platform. They had 40 minutes before the scary's train departed. They sat on a bench and they talked non-stop. They exchanged addresses. He told her a story about how he had once applied to join the RAF but they hadn't let him in because he didn't meet the height requirement. Two weeks after she arrived back in England, Peter wrote to her. She made an immediate reply and she sent it to his home at 5A Friary Avenue. She waited and waited, but nothing came back. She waited some more. She wrote again. This time she sent it to Amien Street Station, Amien Street. He'd been transferred to Dundalk. In Dundalk, he met Anna. She was the manageress of the canteen at Dundalk Station. More importantly than that, Anna ran the Friday night poker game that was the most exclusive club in the town. And it wasn't long before Peter and Anna were going out together. What do you think happened to that first letter? Oh, I believe it were intercepted. I believe it were intercepted. Intercepted by who? By his mother. Oh, by his mother, or one of his one sisters. Of his sisters. I don't think they wanted him having an English girlfriend. girlfriend. You think they stole your letter? Yes, I do. I can't think of any other explanation. Can you? you? Peter continued to write to her. And she lived for his letters. Only he never told her that he was engaged to be married. In the summer of 1948, she decided to pay him a surprise visit. She took the overnight boat from Liverpool, a coach to Amien Street, and she stood again in the queue and giggled like a little girl. Peter took an early lunch that day. He came out, he took her up Talbot Street. He brought her to the Earl Mooney pub. They went into the snug, he bought her a drink. It wasn't long before Anna joined them and he introduced the two women. They shook hands and it was then she saw the ring. Peter. Who's this then, Peter? It's not She's not just your girlfriend, your girlfriend, is she? Is it? No, this is Anna, my wife. wife. Doris left the pub. I'd best be off, Peter. She left the pub and she ran down Talbot Street and I would have thrown myself under a bus. Only there weren't one coming. She had to get out of Ireland. The air in it was choking her. It had all been a terrible, terrible mistake. John McCormack and Ireland, I was English, I didn't fit in, I didn't belong. It had all been a terrible, terrible mistake. Peter caught up with her, put his arms around her and calmed her down. He convinced her to stay that night in Dublin. 
The following day, he put her on the Liverpool boat and told her that there was still hope. There's still hope. Is that really? Don't despair. There's still hope. The letters continued. Oh, there was trouble in Peter's marriage. Doris believed it was only a matter of time before Peter left Anna and came to live with her in England. Would you like another cushion for your back? Would you like an extra cushion Um, for your back? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Sure, another cushion would be lovely. Thank you very much. I didn't need another cushion, but she was trying to pamper me. Would you like another chocolate biscuit? I had drunk so much tea, I'd eaten so many chocolate biscuits that my teeth were all clogged up. I I could barely talk. Um, You didn't keep any of the letters? No. No. I burned them all. all. But you must have kept one or two. Or maybe even five or six. Go on. Show me the letters that you kept. I'll show you nothing, nothing, Master Peter. For there is nothing to show. What we wrote to one another is private. Between me and him for our eyes only. Well, what about photographs? Do you have any photographs of the old days? With that, she disappeared up the stairs and was back momentarily with two photograph albums. She put one on my knee. I opened it. There was a photograph of Da I had never seen before. He looked 15 in it. He was a skinny rake of a thing. He was actually 19 and it was his first day on the job in Amiens Street. It was taken in the book and that was... I turned over the pages and I kept turning and the rest of the album was empty. And then it struck me that this was the album of the life that she never had with Peter, waiting for it to happen, only it never did. I dived into the second album and it was full of photographs. There was one taken of me. I remember the day it was taken. I was wearing Wellington boots and I was trying to kick a football and there was a group shot at the back door of Seville Place. Shay, Anita, Christine, me, Johnny and Frankie. And then, of course, there was one of the three of them. Da in the middle again. The two women on either side with their arms around his waist. Wearing identical dresses. Did, uh, did you sleep with Da? She went bright red. What do you That's a very direct question. Well, did you? What do you mean? I mean, Ooh, did you have well, sex with my father? My bedroom door was never locked where Peter was concerned. concerned. I thought that was a very diplomatic answer. In fact, I thought if there was an Olympic Games for diplomacy, that answer would win the gold medal. Does that mean Christine is my half-sister? You are quite the detective, aren't you? Well, did you have Christine for my dad? No, I didn't. No, I didn't, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. You see, it would have made sense of everything if Christine was my dad's. It would have explained the affair, the duration of it, the obsession. I mean, after the mess up in Dublin in 1948, she told me she tried to make a go of it with a man she met when she got back to England. He was a policeman. They tried to make a go of it, but he didn't measure up. Sure, how could he? And one of the summers she came to stay with us, I remember in particular, because I think Ma organised it to leave Doris on her own with us, you know, to give her a taste of what it was like to look after six children on your own. 
I remember she wanted me to take a bath and it was a Wednesday. It's Wednesday. Wednesday, we don't have baths on a Wednesday. We have a bath on a Saturday night in front of the big fire and then we all go to confession. I mean, my knees were a tiny bit dirty from playing football. She got out the big metal bath, filled it with cold water and told me to get into it. Now, get your clothes off now and get into that bath, Master Peter. Get your clothes off and get in there. I legged it out the back door. I didn't expect her to come after me. I was halfway up Emerald Street. I looked over my shoulder. There she was at the back gate, hitching her skirt up over her knickers so she could run faster. I zoomed into Sheryl Street. I could hear all my pals in the playground. She's behind you, Sheryl. There's a mad woman after you. You're going to get caught. You're going to get caught. I sprinted down Sheryl Street into Aureus Street, around the block, twice trying to lose her. I looked behind me. She was about ten yards behind me. She caught me and boxed the ears off me. I was running for my ma. I didn't want Doris looking after us. I knew that she made ma sad and da happy. The way you do when you're a kid. I wanted the adults to work it out. And for us all to live happily ever after. Even if that meant having two mammies. I didn't care. Because she gave da hell over the fact that we had no proper bath. How am I supposed to look after a brood of kids with no bath inside the house, with no running hot water at my fingertips? Ma went around for three days, smiling from ear to ear. Well, we did get a bath in the end. Uncle Jim and Uncle Paddy came down, and they helped me da plumb it in. He covered it with a big sheet, you know, for the unveiling, like it was a christening. Doris and Christine were staying out in Red Island and they came in for the unveiling of the bat. Ma and I were fighting over Doris, of course. Would you like to come she to had invited Da to weekend. the Saturday Night Red Dress Island. Dance at Red Island. I'd like it. And he had accepted, only he forgot to ask Ma would she like to go. I know what you do you know what you can do, Peter? You can go out and live in Red Island. Red Island. Well, maybe I will. That way you wouldn't have that to look at me from one end of the week to the other. You wanted a bat, I gave you a bat. What more do you want me to do? I want you to, I want you to treat me like, like your wife and not like your, not skivvy. like your skivvy. She asked me to the dress dance. I can't let her down, now can I? Oh no, you can't let Doris down. You can let me down, I don't count. You know, Ma ended up going to that dress dance. Oh, yeah. She went into town and organised herself a frock and gate crashed his liaison. Oh, she wasn't going to lose Dad that easy and not to an English woman. So Doris went back home to England and over the years came backwards and forwards to Dublin. And then one day, out of the blue, a wedding invitation arrived in the post in Doris's unmistakable handwriting. Ma was delighted, thinking that Doris had finally found somebody to spend the rest of her life with. She was mistaken, of course. It was an invitation to Christine's big day. And in the letter, Doris asked Dad to give her away. You have been, you have been more than a father to my daughter, and I would love for you to do us this honour. Dad was chuffed, my less so. I don't think you should do it. 
Why not, ma'am? It's not your place. Well, I don't think it's your place. Not unless... Not unless you are the child's father. Or her father. <sighs> that was the closest she ever came to asking him out straight. Well, they ended up going over for the wedding, the two of them. And she had a great time. Wasn't that the life and soul of the party? You put your right foot in. Your right foot out. In, out, in, out and shake it all about. You see, it takes a Dublin man to organise a proper hokey-cokey. At about four o'clock in the morning, Ma decided it was time to ring for the taxi to take herself and Da back to the hotel she'd booked. Doris wouldn't hear of it. I'll not hear of it. Wasting your hard-earned money on an hotel? You'll stay here. You can sleep in my house. You can take my bed. Ma wasn't so sure about that. Or in Doris's bed. Well, she slept in it, and she said it was the best sleep she'd had in months. The following summer, Doris came for her annual visit, and she brought with her an overcoat that Dad had left behind him at the wedding. He'd gone the whole winter without his good cashmere overcoat. Doris brought it. It was 1977, and I remember because I had written a play called The Liberty Suit. And Jim was directing, and the two of us were doing auditions, and I remember... In a break from the auditions, I was down in several place, and Da asked me to drop Doris to the terminal on the north wall. I thought it was very strange that he didn't bring her himself. Something must have happened. Something transpired. And that was the last time that she saw Da in the flesh. After 1977, she settled for a long-distance relationship. She lived in the hope that Anna would die first and then she'd get to be with her beloved Peter. It's not how it panned out, of course. Da died and she came to visit his grave twice a year. She came on the anniversary of his death, the 14th of January, and on his birthday, the 27th of July. Of course, in preparation for Doris's visits, Ma had to go up to Glasnevin and tidy up the grave. It drove me mad. But still, I went with her. And it was a sort of an education being in Glasnevin with my ma. For she knew half the people buried in Oh God, would you look? Paddy Mac. I didn't know he was dead. You know, when I worked in Cleary's ballroom, he was the best dancer in the place. Danced the legs off you. He drank a pint of stout with a small one on the side. There were over 300 headstones in Glasnevin Cemetery that danced in Cleary's ballroom. I made me way to the grave with Ma, and to be perfectly honest, there wasn't much cleaning up to be done on it. A few winter leaves and a bit of grit. Ma, of course, she always carried a bottle of water and a cloth so she could clean the headstone. It was cathartic for me being in this place with Ma. You know, Da was dead a couple of years, and we could talk openly about him. There were no barriers. Frankie, on the other hand, was dead 30 years and it still felt like an emotional minefield. Ma, why did you just put Francis on the headstone rather than Frankie? Do you know what, Pete? Well, do you know something, they son? Advised us to put his Somebody name suggested at the time that it should service. be his name as it appears on his birth certificate. Do you think we should change it? Do you think it? we should change it? No. No, I don't, Ma. Sure, you and I both know it's Frankie and sure that's all that matters. 
it was a new experience for me talking about Frankie with my ma and I wasn't falling apart. You see, the thing is that I had never really let him go. I'd carried him around all of my life inside of me. But I had never really laid him to rest. So I suggested to Ma that we say a prayer for the repose of Frankie's soul. And we knelt down. And I thought to myself, what a beautiful word the word repose is. We got up to go, and I swear, I felt about a stone lighter. Who said prayer doesn't work? We went back to Merino, to Carlton Road. And Ma, of course, she had to dive straight for the nebulizer, the oxygen, you know, after our exertions in, in Glasnevin. I gave out hell to her. You don't have to do this, Ma, you know. Go up and clean up the grave. You don't have to do it. You don't have to be available. You could be, you could be down in Cork with my sister Isa. Ma, of course, couldn't answer me, you know. Sucking away on her oxygen, she was. And I didn't think I got through to her. God, the following year didn't she suggest it herself. So I wrote to Doris and explained that Ma wouldn't be here. She was going down to Cork. And Doris wrote back and said that she would just I'll make it a one-day trip. One day, so she took the overnight boat from Liverpool, arriving early in Dublin. She walked from the North Wall down through the East Wall, up over Johnny Cullen's Hill, down into Sheriff Street, past the Metal Bridge, St. Martin's O'Toole's Church, pausing outside of Number 44, Seville Place, and then on up the North Circular Road, into Fibsborough, taking a right and down past the Brian Baru pub to Glasnevin Cemetery. A distance of nearly five miles. She got there before the cemetery gates opened. Hello again. Now Paddy Fitz, the gate man, he got to know her. Hello, Doris. He was amazed. But this frail old lady from Blackburn in Lancashire brought 47 fresh red and white roses to put on the grave. Roses in the colour of Manchester United. I'd usually meet her afterwards by appointment at Wynn's Hotel and we'd have a bit of lunch. Sometimes I brought her back to my home and I would always suggest to her to take a lie down, but she never would. That night I put her on the boat and I knew that she went home happy. Happy that she had kept her promise to Peter. She kept that up for ten years, from 1994 to 2004. I think things changed for her after Anna died. Anna died in May 1999. And I think then that Doris's private time with Peter at the grave didn't feel private anymore. Especially after Anna's details went on the headstone. So from 2004 on, she preferred to remember him from her home in Blackburn. And sure, she still had her photographs to look at and her radio to listen to. The one that he had tuned in for her. 
not sure if it was a good day. They might even play Count John McCormack. And she'd remember him singing to her the first time she saw him in the station. Makushla, Makushla, your sweet voice is calling, calling me softly again and again. That was 47 Roses, written and performed by Peter Sheridan. Other voices by Deirdre Monaghan, Carl Porter and Dave McHugh. The stage production of 47 Roses was realised by Maggie Byrne, Sheila Sheridan and Donal Shields. Sound recording was by Mark Dwyer and sound supervision was by Richard McCulloch. 47 Roses by Peter Sheridan was produced by Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one.